Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Anthology 4. I am your host, Springheel Jack, and today we're going to pick back up where we left off with our multi-part series on Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Uh, if you remember, last time we were talking about Jim Jones' childhood, his mother Lynetta, Big Jim, Jim, Big Jim's war service, uh, all the miscellaneous bullshit that seemed to follow little Jimmy wherever he was. Uh, specifically, when last we left off, he had just pushed a puppy through a trap door in front of all of the friends of his that were in his baseball league that he was organizing. At which point, the baseball league broke up. It was a strange act of animal cruelty. Remember this? This is where we ended it. So Jimmy is, I think, about 14 as of now in our uh, timeline. And I'm going to jump back into it. But first, thank you all for tuning back in. This is going to be another exciting episode of uh, an ad-free listening experience. With the exception of maybe some comedic ads from people that are not sponsoring me. But they don't pay me to play those, so eat shit. Because I have no advertisers, seeing as I am a public relations nightmare. So, Jim's mother, Lynetta, seemed to grow unhappier with each passing year. Also, the main source for this episode, as well as the last episode, is The Road to Jonestown by Jeff Gwynn, which I thoroughly recommend. It became increasingly apparent that the rest of the world would never recognize how exceptional Lynetta was, in her own mind at least. She'd cha changed jobs several times, and she ended up working in a Richmond plant that manufactured automotive rings. In this shop, as in all the others where she'd worked, Lynetta, Lynetta was positive she was smarter than her bosses. Entitled to be giving orders instead of taking them, but she rem re remained an ordinary employee. I'm certain that you know this woman, or man. Uh, I usually describe them as having a bad case of I like to pretend to be the manager symptom, but, or syndrome rather. Whatever, I guess I'm that guy now. <laughs> uh, hope. Anyway, so taking the bus to and from work every day while also being expected to tolerate a husband who constantly aggravated her with his wheezing and his debilitated condition, her relationship with old Jim and his family remained strained at best, at least from Lynetta's perspective. She suspected them of encouraging other town residents to criticize how she raised her son. Jimmy, aka Jimba, was a nickname for him, was an alternating source of pride and frustration to his mother. On one hand, she still fervently believed that he was selected by the spirits to be special, because if Lynetta herself couldn't be famous, at least, goddammit, someday she might shine in her child's reflected glory. One of them tiger parents, you see. But on many days, Jimbo was just one more agonizingly draining responsibility that she had to put up with. Lynetta, Lynetta's mothering at best was sporadic. Sometimes she hovered constantly, espousing his, her spiritual beliefs and reminding Jimba of his distinguished heritage on her side of the family. More often, though, she ignored him and was happy to not let others assume responsibility for his care. Or was happy to let others assume responsibility for his care. If she talked to him at all, it was to scream at him about perceived disobedience. Lynetta shouted at old Jim, too. Uh, he was weak and old, and she disdained him. In particular, old Jim was entirely unable to perform when his long-suffering wife wanted a little, a little pleasure in her marital bed. Sex was very important to Lynetta, and about the time that Jim started high school, she took another Lin man as her fuck buddy. The affair lasted for several years. The participants were reasonably discreet, but some people in Lynn still found out about it, which means that everybody knew about it because they were old Jim's relations in particular. They were all divided on the subject. The Jones men thought Lynetta was acting immorally, but some of the women were sympathetic. She had a hard life. After all, her husband was a sick, disturbed war veteran. Though nobody directly confronted Lynetta, she understood that they knew. For almost 20 years, Lynetta had always believed that many of her in-laws despised her. They didn't, but now it was true. They did. Jimmy also knew that his mother had a boyfriend. He was the kind of teenager who picked up on just about everything. By this point, it was ingrained in him that if a side must be chosen, he would sympathize with his mother and not with his father. Whatever she did, the old man deserved it. As Lynetta embarked on her fling, young Jimba also pursued romance. Typically, he went about it differently from other teenagers in the town because he was a fucking nerd, and in a manner that he would repeat as an adult, uh, it was his style, if you will. 
Because in Lynn, high school dating was a serious business. Most teenagers paired off early, married immediately after high school or college graduation. College. <laughs> Raised families and grew old together. Today, many of Jimmy Jones' surviving peers are close to celebrating 65th or 70th wedding anniversaries. Happy anniversary, you guys are fucking old. In Jimmy's high school days, the acknowledged belle among the girls was a lady named Sarah Lou Howlin. Harlan. Sarah Lou Harlan. The daughter of the town's oral specialist. The dentist. Sarah Lou was sweet and pretty. Most of the boys had crushes on her, but respected her status as the girlfriend of fellow bulldog Dick... <laughs> oh man, these are good names again. This is like the fucking Black Dahlia one. Stupid-ass names. Uh, Dick Grubbs. <laughs> okay. The high school community was a close-knit, close-knit one, just like Lynn was. And it was simply unacceptable to try to be Mr. Steelio Girl, which is what he was trying to do. One day, young Jimba attached himself to Sarah Lou, and he stayed close to her everywhere at school, and when classes were over, he followed her home. It was unwanted attention. Sarah Lou thought Jimmy was a prick and asked Dick to do something about it. So Dick took Jimmy aside and explained to the prick, Jimmy, that he needed to leave Sarah Lou alone. But he wasn't interested. It had no effect. He felt if he wanted her, he should be able to have her. It was his right, and nobody else's opinion, including Sarah Lou's, mattered. So when Jimmy persisted, Dick would have been considered well within his rights to take him behind the school and kick his fucking ass. But Dick did not. It was obvious to him that something, that nothing he did would change Jimmy's mind. Maybe Sarah Lou's parents could talk to him. Sounds like coward talk to me, but whatever. Good for him, I guess. So Sarah's parents did, and one day after school, Sarah Lou was astonished to find Jimmy Jones right there in her house, chatting with her mother and father like they were old buddies. The Harlins praised Jimmy's good manners to Sarah Lou. Wasn't he a nice boy? They invited him to come to church with the family on Sunday, and he did, staying for the whole service. And the fact that he'd somehow fooled her parents didn't do Jimmy any good with Sarah, though. She still would not move, and she still wouldn't give Dick the finger for him. Dick remembers that it was a long while before he gave up, and then one day he just starts acting like it never happened at all. So when Jimmy finally realized he'd never get with her, he moved on to a, a girl named Phyllis Wilmore, where Sarah Lou was the school pinup, Phyllis was the town's smart girl, and Jimmy had a lot more luck with her. The other kids thought Phyllis and Jimmy had a strange relationship because they sat around on her porch reading books together. Nerds. Once in a while, they even held hands. <laughs> Skanks, man. Both of them. Phyllis recalls that it was, a, it was less a romance than two kids making their first awkward attempts at dating. They went to church together. Jimmy took her to the Nazarene services and went to the Church of Christ with her and once to the movies in Richmond. I'm getting sick to my stomach, man. Phyllis's mother drove them there together. The kids sat in the backseat of the car, and Mrs. Wilmore stayed to see the show. In the theater, Jimmy made a big deal of getting her settled in a good seat before he joined Phyllis several rows away. Oh, for fuck's sake. Jimmy and Phyllis never got beyond a mostly platonic relationship. They quickly fizzled as a couple, though they remained on friendly terms. But afterwards, Phyllis found very few chances to talk to Jimmy because he had another demand of his time. So a few years earlier, a new faith came to Lynn, and that was a radically different one from the others that had been long established in the town. If you remember the Nazarenes, and no Catholics, though. <laughs> a Mr. McFarland took over the old storefront on Highway 36, just across from a grocery store, and announced the opening of an apostolic church. He stuck up flyers all over town, promising that if people came to the services, there they would see speaking in tongues, they'd be moved by the Spirit, they would... Uh, their dicks would work again for the first time in 20 years. Whatever they needed to get there, he put on that fucking poster. And the pastors of Lynn's other churches didn't like it. The apostolics, whom some called Pentecostals, were actively trying to recruit. They were like... Mm, I'm not going to compare them to the Aryan Brotherhood, but they're like... Cutco. They're like Cutco knives. Always trying to recruit. Briefly, it works too. People in Lynn had never seen anything like it. They actually dropped down on the floor, started rolling around in their services and babbling in gibberish and being moved by the serpent or shucking the, the Jesus, whatever the fuck they do in these services. I don't know. This, this witch doctory. It was wonderful entertainment, at the very least, and townspeople went once or twice 
stared and returned to their more traditional churches afterwards and had a good time, so it seemed, while they were there at the services. The congregation that the newly arrived apostolics was able to retain was drawn almost exclusively from outside of town. Usually, southerners had moved up to Indiana and were used to such services. There was no denying that the apostolics put on a show, not just on Sundays, but also uh, occasional weeknights and sometimes Saturdays. On Saturdays, farmers would come into town to trade at the Highway 36 grocery and then stand outside the storefront across the street and shake their heads in amusement and wonder, what the fuck the Holy Rollers inside were making all that crazy noise during a Saturday night service for? Often, Jimmy Jones was inside among the apostolics watching carefully, soaking everything in. Their pastor had a lot more freedom than the ministers in Lynn's other churches. He didn't stick to some rigid hear ye, hear ye format. Instead, he'd jump and yell and howl if the spirit moved him to. Amen. And the reactions of the congregation were enjoyable as well. They screamed themselves and screamed and danced and turned the gatherings into uh, what they referred to as exuberant celebrations, but what I would refer to is a groupthink psychotic episode. Jimmy still spent most Sundays popping in and out of all the Lynn's other churches. But the Holy Rollers held a special place within his heart. He took to attending the weekend revivals out in the country because he thoroughly enjoyed them. At some point, Lynetta noticed and did not like it. Even to her, those people were fucking weirdos. And she later described a dramatic scene when she confronted the Holy Roller leader, a woman, and ordered her to leave her son alone because Jimbo was having nightmares caused by the dreadful things he heard during the services. And the Lord will take the devil away from you. He won't because neither one of them exist. The op- Sorry if there's religious members listening. The awful woman actually had Jimba preach, because when he did, all the listeners contributed more than usual to the uh, collection plate. I like the Jeff Foxworthy joke, if you've ever made change in a collections dish, you might be a redneck. But I think you're just smart. Whatever. Like most of Lynetta's remembrances, it's probably not true. It's not. Guaranteed not sure I looked it up. Mr. Stump, a pipe fitter during the week, conducted the local apostolic services, and nobody remembers Jimmy delivering sermons in any of them. But he began sermonizing somewhere else, and on the most controversial topic possible. As was his custom. Randolph County was unique in rural Indiana for another reason beside, besides its exceptional public schools, and it was possible for white country people to go fucking years without seeing, let alone interacting, with a single person of color. But there were three black enclaves in Randolph County, which were clusters of ramshackle homes that were too tiny to achieve official town statuses. Still, there were collectively several hundred African Americans in the county, mostly farmhands who came into the Winchester area and land on weekends to trade and shop. They were not treated as equals. Black children did not attend the nice white Lynn schools. White mothers would never dream of inviting colored kids over to play with their kids because there was still a culture of racism in the country at this time. But white people in Lynn saw black people stood in line with them in town shops and even chatted with them informally outside of the grocery store or veterinarian's office sometimes. Like all the other white kids in Lynn, Jimmy Jones grew up accustomed to being around black people. Unlike his peers, he demonstrated genuine interest in their lives beyond his hometown's unwritten social boundaries. This is one thing I will say about Jim Jones. I, I genuinely like this about him. Uh, on trips to Richmond, the nearest big city, with its population of about 30,000, Jimmy noticed and was bothered by African Americans being treated like shit by white people. They were called insulting names and ordered around like dogs, and Jimmy didn't like it because it was wrong, and he could see that. Quite a few poor blacks lived in Richmond, and since it had factory jobs readily available, and there were others that drifted through on a regular basis. Wayne County, which was where Richmond was located, held the derogatory statewide nickname of, yikes, Little Africa, and so while he was in high school, Jimmy would sometimes get up on Saturday mornings, put on his best clothes, and take the bus 17 miles to Richmond. Then he'd walk from the bus station to the poor part of town by the railroad tracks, where what people considered to be the, the worst of the worst congregated down there, and Jimmy would find some place to stand, and he would just start reading the, reading the gospel, start preaching. Always about everyone being equal in God's eyes, but how, and how it was wrong to look down on anybody, especially for the color of their skin. The white kid promised black down-and-out people that if they stayed strong, better times were coming. His exact words are lost, but the old-timers in Richmond remember hearing about it. So back when he was back home in Lynn... 
Jimmy went out of his way to emphasize his faith. He took ostentatiously carrying a Bible everywhere. Oh my God, I hate that. It amused rather than impressed the town's other teenagers because it does specifically say in the Bible to not do that. Ex explicitly not to do that. Don't make a show of your faith. Or I forget the exact passage, so spare me the, uh, the hate mail on this, but it make not a show of your faith because they should know by your actions and not by your proclamation of the word or some shit. But it says don't carry your Bible around and pretend like you're religious when you're just really a cunt. Uh, they took it all for granted that strange Jimmy Jones was just destined to be a preacher, and that earned him a significant high school accolade. The Bulldogs were about to take on a rival school in some sporting event for particular significance, and Jimmy was asked to conduct a mock funeral service for the other team at a pregame Bulldog pep rally. That's hilarious. He unenthusiastically complied, astonishing some with how fervently he consigned the opposing team to its mass grave. Oh my god. One classmate recalled that he had a very large flair for the dramatic. Yeah, no shit. That pep rally funeral was teenage Jimmy's last memorable moment in Lynn, because in 1948, during the summer between his junior and senior year, him and his mother moved to Richmond. Alone. For 22 years, Lynetta endured, rather than in any sense enjoyed, her marriage to old Jim. All she had for solace was her lover, and when he moved away from Lynetta, she couldn't stand life in Lynn anymore. So she worked in Richmond, had a few cafes and movie houses, with a nice big park. Why not at least escape her useless husband and his nasty carping family and live there instead? Jimmy was about to become a high school senior, but he was ready to leave too. He had no close friends in Lynn, and though he could have remained with his father, he disdained old Jim as much or more than old Lynetta did. And recently he started hinting that his dad periodically became violent and beat his wife and son, which didn't gain much traction in Lynn because everybody was willing to believe old Jim was a drunk, but a man who could barely stagger down the street was unlikely to summon the energy for dramatic bouts of domestic violence. And if Jimmy's dad beat him, where were the bruises? Childhood pal Max Knight recalls how Jimmy cried when describing old Jim's alleged brutality. And old Jim did not return his wife and son's contempt. He expressed his sorrow at their abrupt departure with actions rather than words. After Lynetta and Jimmy were gone, old Jim couldn't bear living alone in the Grant Street house anymore, so Lynn had a hotel and he took a room there. His family provided whatever money he needed beyond his army disability pension. Uh, his physical deterioration just worsened, though, and James Thurman Jones died of respiratory failure in May of 1951. His, he was 63 years old, but he looked 90. His enduring love for Lynetta is reflected on his burial marker, which is a double tombstone in the Mount Zion Cemetery with old Jim's name and dates of birth and death carved on one half and her name and dates of birth on the other. Very optimistic. Underneath is a short inscription, which is the worst thing I've ever fucking heard as far as an epitaph goes. Uh, everyone in the world is my friend. Fucking Jesus. And Lynetta and Jim didn't go to the funeral. Afterwards, though, Lynetta filed a widow's claim for all of his army pension because she's a real fucking peach. In fall of 48, Jimmy enrolled in Richmond's high school, and for a change, his clothes didn't set him apart. Teens in this big town dressed nicer than the Randolph County kids, and no patchwork shirts and pants were anywhere to be seen in the campus. He retained his old habit of not talking unless he wanted to start a conversation, and surviving Richmond classmates had vague recollections of him at best. I think it's probably ideal. Generally, memories of his thick, dark hair and his striking eyes. Jimmy's courting techniques remained fucking stupid, and one girl was greatly offended when Jimmy, who was a total stranger, came up to her in the hallway and grabbed her hand. Oh, man. Not cool. Richmond boys were supposed to be polite, so she yanked her hand away and complained about it to some of the other girls. But Jimmy did make a few friends, and all of them were part of the school Youth Fellowship for Christians. They called him Jonesy and invited him to join them for late-night donuts, as they endlessly debated the best way to live righteous lives. The consensus was that they termed Christian communism, and they believed that from each other, according to ability, to each according to need, was proper church approach. They didn't share the conclusion outside their group, though, and the Richmond High Christian youth kids weren't advocating communist governments. 
uh, where the state owned everything and told you what to do. They just wanted their churches to voluntarily adopt a philosophy that mandated compassion and equal treatment for everybody. Yeah, okay. But the Cold War was in full bloom. And communism in any form was a fucking four-letter word to most Americans, so the youngsters kept their beliefs where they belonged to themselves. As with all of your beliefs, they should be stuffed into that pit of your stomach that never sees the light of day and left there, because no one fucking cares. Jimmy wasn't remotely challenged by his school curriculum, and his education in Lynn had been so academically advanced that he was allowed to skip some of the Richmond classes and graduate a semester ahead of all the 12th graders. Which was a good thing, because while in school, he also held down a full-time night shift job. Lynetta's salary at Perfect Circle, the piston ring manufacturer in Richmond, could not cover the expenses for herself and her son. And though she would later claim to be a senior employee responsible for unionizing the Perfect Circle shop despite threats from management, she was, in fact, a simple assembly line worker. Her Jones in-laws had chipped in back in Lynn, but since Lynetta had abandoned old Jim, there would be no more financial help from them. That left no choice. In Richmond, Jimmy had to put that fucking ass to work, and he soon found a job at the city's largest employer, which was uh, a little shanty known as Reed Memorial Hospital, which opened in 1905. The Reed staff was paid well, but supervisors were sparing with praise and quick to weed out the undesirable, so young Jimmy had to shape up quick. 17-year-old Jimmy was hired as a night orderly, which was the shittiest status of employment in the hospital at the time. Hard work, disagreeable tasks, uh, they ranged from cleaning up vomit to helping move the newly deceased or handling the disposal of amputated limbs. Working through the night was hard enough, but for a boy trying to handle a full high school schedule and homework, it was terrible. But. Jimmy did better here than he probably ever did in the rest of his life. He immediately demonstrated the ability to function on little sleep or some days none. And as soon as his final afternoon class was over, he rushed through homework and reported for duty at Reed. Once at work, he would cheerfully tackle all the most disgusting chores the other orderlies tried to avoid. And above all, these included dealing with cantankerous patients or else seriously ill unfortunates who literally reeked of decay and despair. Jonesy won them over with warm smiles, sweet jokes, and always empathy. Patients of every background and their families felt that this young man understood. His memory was amazing. Jimmy remembered every sick person's name and the names of parents and spouses and children and, and cousins as well. Uh, man, some patients required care of especially personal nature, having their diapers changed or being given sponge baths, and Jimmy made these potentially embarrassing moments almost fun with his lively chatter and positive attitude and read management took notice. Orderlies routinely received critical performance reviews and there was nothing to criticize about Jim. He was too young to be put in a supervisory position over the other orderlies, but he could be and was assigned to work with doctors and nurses involved in critical forms of care. By the time young Jimba graduated from Richmond High in December 48, his choice of future career was in doubt. He intended to become a minister, now he contemplated a career in medicine. Preachers guided lives, but doctors saved them, and there was an appeal in both. Soon after his graduation, Jimmy took a quick trip back to Lynn and discussed it with his former girlfriend, Phyllis Wilmore, who later remembered that Jimmy even mentioned getting into hospital administration, being the one who told doctors what to do. Becoming a preacher wouldn't necessarily require going to a college, but doctors and hospital administrators needed degrees. Jimmy was ready for that. Of course, he'd have to pay his own way there, though, and tuition and living expenses and all that combining school and work didn't phase for him, and it probably wouldn't have worked out. But much like his mother, Jimmy believed he was destined for, and deserved, greatness. Unlike Lynetta, though, it seemed like he might have the opportunity to reach the new heights that he anticipated, especially after meeting a charming young woman who had ambitions of her own, Marceline. Richmond was intended to be more of a drab manufacturing town than anything else but it was a point of civic pride to emphasize quality lifestyles beyond job opportunities. Even factory workers and their families had access to decent public schools, a sprawling park, a liberal arts college, downtown shops, theaters, cafes, and the many health services of Reed Memorial Hospital. And of course, a wide selection of churches, virtually all of them bleh, Protestant. Excuse me. The town's African-American population, comprising perhaps 15% citizenship, had value in its finest Midwestern tradition. 
Blacks were needed to fill low-end assembly line jobs and to serve as maids and gardeners in Richmond's well-to-do whites' houses. And naturally... Oh, God. Um, nice African-Americans in Richmond kept mostly to themselves outside the workplace. If they did encounter white people, uh, it was cordial enough, I guess. I'm sorry, I'm trying to fucking weed out the uh, racial slurs in this paragraph. Can't. When white Richmond residents speaking among themselves used the word N-word, they most often considered it descriptive rather than derogatory. Oh, man. Different times. Wealthy Richmond men like Daniel G. Reed were too busy with their thriving business to devote the time necessary to hands-on civic leadership. They did their part through philanthropy and for city government and drives for public progress like expanding the local college, Richmond took to its upper to middle class. Always finding dedicated individuals glad to contribute towards the common good. Nobody epitomized that trade more than Walter Baldwin. Walter was a Christian guy who initially tried ministry. He was a gifted musician and brought that gift to the cause that he deemed as that of Jesus Christ. Uh, charming congregations with songs that were genuine, kind, and loving. But spirituality had led to eventually be, uh, it had to be tampered by, or tempered by practicality when Walter met and fell in love with a vibrant lady named Charlotte. When they married, Walter needed a better compensation from, for his employment, so he ended up in management at the International Harvester in Richmond. The Baldwin settled down into an attractive two-story house, and the neighbors remember its front yard was larger than most, and Walter and Charlotte kept it nicely maintained. Over the years, became proud parents of their loving daughters, Eloise, Sharon, and Marceline. They were active members of the Methodist Church in Richmond, and uh, when the town Republicans needed solid, sound candidates for city council, they turned to Walter. He served with great distinction, always interested in helping others and never attracting too much attention to himself. Charlotte Baldwin was Walter's perfect life partner, equally at home, on formal occasions, and at home gatherings. She was deeply religious and believed that the Lord sometimes sent her messages and dreams. She had a firm sense of propriety as well. She expected everybody, including her family, to act right all the time. So whenever, in her opinion, somebody didn't, she would correct them immediately. Which I like that about her. For the most part, her daughters were glad to comply. They honored and respected their parents, rarely questioning their rules. Only eldest daughter, Marceline, born in 27, was the only one that ever rebelled. And when I say rebelled, take that for what it's worth. That, what does that mean in 1927, being born terms? So... One of Charlotte's edicts was that the curtains in the Baldwin home be closed all the time. She didn't want passerbys perving on her daughter. And Marceline sometimes would pull them open, telling her mother that there shouldn't be anything going on that the rest of the world couldn't see. Aha! Walter Baldwin frequently hosted political conclaves at his house, and he and his friends were uh, quite obviously Republicans, which they, uh, with nearly the same fervor that they followed Christianity. And Marceline once shocked and awed them by nonchalantly saying she was going to vote on a Democratic ticket on this next election. That fucking barbarian. Otherwise, she was the perfect daughter. Uh, the baby sister had health problems, and Marceline was devoted to taking care of her. She was always concerned for her comfort, even when Marceline's own rheumatoid arthritis periodically just marooned her in her bed. She worked hard in classes, and when she was... An above-average student, always. And she always seemed to find time after school to be with her friends or to have them come over to her house because she believed it was the happiest place anywhere. Clearly, she'd never been to Disneyland. Marceline inherited her father's musical talents and she had a sweet, gorgeous singing voice, often sang solos at church on Sunday. Marceline and her sister, Eloise, and the church youth fellowship friend named Janice formed a music ministry. And they played at Reed Hospital, where young Jim Jonesy worked, and at old folks' homes. Eloise and Janice liked to fuck off a little bit during rehearsals, and when they did, Marceline reminded them that it was time for work rather than fucking off. It was everybody's Christian duty to minister to those in need, she stressed, and that meant always doing your best, not wasting time with stupid shit. Still, Marceline's faith was never negative. Her cousin recalls her faith. If Marceline had to take a good or a bad opinion of somebody, she would look for the good. 
I guess you'd call her one of those positive people. And I guess I'd call you a wordsmith, cousin Avalyn. Marceline's piety was much admired, but in another critical area, she puzzled her friends. And while the other teenage girls were obsessed with penises, Marceline showed little interest. It wasn't that she didn't have the opportunity to have many boyfriends, but she, she was pretty attractive and had a great personality. Hovering boys distracted her from her work and it's at school and at church and music. And so dates would creep in on her time, which she carefully parceled out to fulfill the most important obligations. Wow. Yeah, me too. That's exactly how I was in high school. When high school graduation neared, Marceline had to make decisions about her future. Her grades were good enough to make college possible, but there was another option. At home. Marceline was determined to spend her life helping others in what better way than nursing. Even as a little girl, Marceline liked visiting Reed Memorial. She'd bring flowers and little tokens to the sick people there, and then sometimes allowed to follow the nurses around. Federally funded program allowed her to enter nursing school at no cost to her parents. Housing was on Reed's campus. As part of her training, Marceline was immediately in daily contact with patients, comforting them, providing services that eased their pain, and she loved every second of it because that's all she wanted. So by this time, Marceline did not love Richmond quite as much anymore. Her cousin, the well-spoken Avalyn, also worked at the huge employer hospital Reed, and the young women sometimes speculated about what life might be like somewhere else, like Ohio. In particular, some place where it didn't get bitterly cold in the winter, like Louisiana. Marceline's determination to live a life of Christian service had not wavered in the slightest. She still loved her family with all her heart, but it was a wide world, and she and her dipshit cousin had never gotten to see much of it outside of Richmond. Evelyn remembers that Marceline wanted a bigger adventure. Oh, you fucking poet laureate, you. So the Coritz, oh, excuse me, so the cousin studied maps. Atlanta was considered, and Florida, but the two kept talking about Kentucky. Oh, for fuck's sake. It just sounded interesting. They contacted the Chamber of Commerce in the state's biggest cities and requested information about hospitals in them. And as always, Marceline was methodical. She wanted every available fact before making a decision. And when the time came to tell her father and mother, she was determined to demonstrate to them that moving away was not an impetuous decision and in no way reflected badly on them. So around the Christmas holidays in 1948, plans were almost in place. Evelyn and Marceline had narrowed down their relocation choices. Uh, Evelyn, who is now over 90, cannot remember where they decided in Kentucky. Uh, but they were determined to go soon. Once her mind was made up, Marceline, May Baldwin, never wavered. She was like a cruise missile, yo. And that's why, just before Christmas, Evelyn was shocked when Marceline told her she would not be moving, in fact, to Kentucky at all. She said she'd met a boy and was in love in that. Evelyn says that she frowned at the memory. She never said anything about him before, never a hint of it. And when she told me it was Jim Jonesy, I couldn't believe it, especially since she was so much older than he was. But from that moment on, it was like he was all she thought about. He wasn't that much older, or she wasn't that much older than him. Uh, yeah, she was. Way to go, Jimba. I want you to take note of Marceline's family's political connections because that was included for specific reasons. That is very important for later. It's how Jimba was able to pull off a lot of the shit that he did. He was very well connected politically thanks to his wife. So, how did they meet, you might ask? You want to feel sick to your stomach? I fucking do. One night in late 1948, when she was a senior nursing student at Reed, Young Marceline Baldwin prepared a corpse for pickup by the undertaker. It was a difficult task, and Marceline asked that an orderly help her out. And that orderly just happened to be underage 17-year-old Jim Jones, who'd earned a considerable reputation around the hospital for perpetual good mood. I don't trust a motherfucker with a perpetual good mood. You can't handle me at my worst? Go fuck yourself, because that's my best, too. Eh... Uh, so, now washing and dressing the corpse, who was a young pregnant woman that died of some unpronounceable illness, Jim was uh, anything but, you know, jovial. He acted solemn and respectful as he helped the pretty young nurse. And then when they were done, Marceline was amazed to see that Jim took an extra few minutes to comfort the dead girl's family. 
fucking bedside manner. Fuck this guy. Jim was, and she would always remember later, visibly touched by their suffering. She saw that in him. She saw that, that empathy, and it stuck with her for whatever reason. And after that, Jim always seemed to be around whenever Marceline took her work breaks. He liked to talk, and she uh, was forced to be a good listener. He told heart-rendering tales of his terrible childhood in Lynn, how he'd often gone hungry and constantly suffered at the hands of his alcoholic, physically abusive, war veteran father. But instead of wearing him down, the mistreatment inspired Jim to become dedicated to raising up other unfortunate souls in the same way, or in some way, that had yet to be determined, but he was going to do it. God damn it. He was about to graduate early from high school and then go on to college, and after that he'd accomplish as much as an unstinting effort and faith in the Lord would allow. And Marceline did not doubt his sincerity. For any other young couple, a three and a half year age difference might have precluded serious romance, but Jim simply overwhelmed Marceline with constant attention. She later joked that she married Jim to get rid of it. Marceline's very proper upbringing with every young man she encountered following conventional social customs in no way prepared her for somebody who had interest in traditional courting. And as one childhood friend recalls, Marceline was always very smart, but that's not the same thing as being cultured or experienced or worldly. Jim bullshitted her with his poisoned words, and every story he told Marceline seemed to place him in a situation where he stood up for the disenfranchised when nobody else would, which kind of was true some of the time, but not all these stories were entirely forthcoming. But she was especially impressed when Jim revealed he'd once been a highly touted basketball star for the Lynn Bulldogs, only to quit the team when his coach said a nasty thing about black people. Uh, not true. Once he told Marceline that he walked out of a barber shop with his hair cut only on one side because the barber made a racist comment. Everyone was equal, Jim insisted, and it was the responsibility of all truly caring people to devote their lives to helping others. And she should agree, and she did. Marceline did agree. It seemed to make natural sense, even if there was a God, God ordained, and that she felt she should join Jim in that effort. So when Jim began discussing marriage, she was agreeable enough. Even though they'd only known each other for a few months, Jesus Christ, Jim spoke of married life as a grand adventure. They'd go wherever there were others oppressed and in need. Oh man, like fucking uh, the ghost of Tom Jode, wherever there's a cop beating a guy, Wherever a hungry newborn baby cries? Look for me, Mom. I'll be there. <laughs> it sounded good, so Marceline took Jim home to meet her family. Walter and Charlotte Baldwin, they were uh, kind-hearted people. And they were certainly prepared to welcome an ambitious young man trying to work his way up in the world. True, his manners were pretty fucking terrible, but Marceline explained about his terrible, abusive upbringing, and her parents were ready to help Jimba learn more cultured ways, and they were astonished to discover that he expected them to conform to his. Casual conversation about politics set Jim off. His core beliefs were ingrained from childhood, and when he listened to constant diatribes about his, from his mother about how the rich exploited the poor and how the powerful didn't want to give anybody else a chance, the Baldwins uh, said that they knew from their own experience it wasn't true. They didn't see eye to eye. Walter himself had done so much for all sorts of people while on the Richmond City Council. He'd done a lot. Uh, experience, decades of appropriate community service, these were the things that gave someone the right to offer their opinions. But this little bitch, the boy, still a teenager, insisted that he knew better than mature politicians and adults. He sounded a great deal like a socialist and potentially a communist. But Marceline was clearly in love with him, and she was a very reasonable and responsible girl. Which surely meant that Jim's good qualities, and uh, they potentially weighed his, outweighed his current immature rant and his tendency to do so. Uh, the Baldwins would have preferred that their cherished oldest daughter choose somebody more traditional, but they begrudgingly accepted Jimba, rough edges and bullshit opinions and all, out of love for their daughter and trust of her opinion and their parenting. They accepted it. Marceline's friends were pleased she'd finally found somebody 
though they were surprised that he was so much younger and somewhat fucking rude. Marceline confided that she thought Jim would eventually become a minister, and Janet L. Beach remembers that, to most of them, this explained everything. We thought how perfect it was that this was the way it should be. Marceline would love being the pastor's wife. With her own record of life, with her own record of early, if failed, marital experience, Jimba's mom, Lynetta, could hardly object to her son's marriage at such a young age. She and Marceline did not immediately become close, but they managed to coexist. Jimba even took Marceline back to Lynn to meet his Jones relatives, and uh, she made a predictably good impression. Almost too much for a good one. My first thought was that she was angelic, just glowing, shining, a will of a wisp, and obviously special, recalls Jean Jones Luther, who was then 16. I wonder, whatever does she see in that idiot Jim? Oh, shit. Jim was a young man in a hurry, and in January of 1949, he resigned from Reed Hospital, moved to Bloomington, and enrolled in the University of Indiana. His courses were elementary composition, introduction to business, introduction to psychology, public speaking, and along with freshman English, P.E., remedial methods in study and reading, and it reflected indecision about a future career, all of these lumped together. Since he was responsible for his own expenses, he worked at night and didn't really have a choice in the matter, and on weekends, took the bus back to Richmond to see Marceline. The hectic schedule seemed to agree with him. Uh, his first semester, his grades were A's and B's, with a low grade of a B- in elementary composition. Then and always, Jim Jones was a far more adept speaker rather than writer. On the afternoon of June 12, 1949, James Warren Jones married Marceline May Baldwin in Richmond. It was a double wedding. Marceline's sister, Eloise, married a poor sucker named Dale Klingman. The ceremony was strictly traditional, with the brides wearing matching gowns of dusty rose over fucking unpronounceable bridal shit a bunch of they're wearing dusty rose colored dresses fucking organza over dusty rose taffeta whatever the fuck that means and richmond's daily newspaper reported the event in a lengthy article noting that mr and mrs jones would reside in bloomington but they couldn't afford that right away so jim returned to school for the summer taking classes in economic history and advanced public speaking Marceline still lived with her parents, working at Reed and saving money to move to Bloomington in the fall. Jim lived with her at the Baldwins on the weekends, and problems soon arose. Charlotte Baldwin believed she had the right to say what she pleased in her own home. And one weekend, soon after the wedding, she commented that, in her opinion, it was not Christian for people of different races to intermarry. Oh, for fuck's sake. 37 years later, Participating separately in a series of interviews for a proposed history to be published by, uh, on the People's Temple, Jim and Marceline both dictated their memory of what followed. And as he recalled it, Charlotte compared black people, whom she called the N-word, to communists, and then berated her new son-in-law for his socialist beliefs. He replied, I've had enough of your religious hypocrisy and I'm sick of you. Don't worry. I'll never sit at your table as long as I live, and you'll never see me again as long as I live as well. And then Jones said, I whipped out of that goddamn house. I told Marcy, you're going to have to choose between me and that bitch. Man, Marceline's vision was far less vulgar. Uh, my mother made some remark about how it was not Christian intermarry, and then Jim started throwing our stuff in bags and suitcases, and we got in the car, and my parents didn't know where we were for a really long time. And when we went back to Richmond, we'd go to Jim's mom's place. If my parents walked in, Jim walked out. And this went on until finally, my parents had to bend, because there was no compromise in Jim. That fall in Bloomington, Marceline discovered that Jim did not believe in marital compromise either. She'd married him with the understanding that he, like her, believed in God and the God of the Bible and trusted in his wisdom. But... The newlyweds were barely settled in their tiny off-campus apartment when Jim told Marceline that he didn't believe in her God at all, uh, since a just and loving God would never permit so much human misery. He would later say in Jonestown that I started devastating God. I tore the motherfucker to shreds and laid him out to rest. Marceline and I would fight and she'd cry. Uh, we were washing dishes one time, and Marceline said, I love you, but don't say anything about the Lord anymore. And I said, fuck the Lord. 
we ended up in some goddamn scrap and she threw a glass at my head. Good <laughs> for you, Marceline. And, like, uh, fucking whatever, man. Why would you... Another time, Jim and Marceline argued about God's goodness or lack thereof uh, as they drove along a country road and Marceline was behind the wheel. So Jim claimed later that she blamed his socialist beliefs for such unwarranted disdain of the Lord. She said, I can't take this anymore. You either change your ideology or get out of this car. We were in the middle of nowhere and I said, stop the car. When I stepped out of the car, I said to myself, this marriage is broken. I'm not giving up my ideology for her or for anybody else. So Jim walked and walked for several hours until she finally came back. She was the one to bend because I was determined that I would not. Afterward, Marceline was less inclined to argue with Jimba about matters of faith. She admitted he took an awful lot of starch out of me. And privately in conversations with her mother, sisters, and cousin Avalyn, she admitted that she considered a divorce. And for the first, but far from last time, Charlotte Baldwin convinced her against it. Marceline was always welcome back home, but her mother suggested that Jim wasn't really that bad. Evelyn thought Charlotte's advice was selfish. Baldwin women simply do not divorce. It was unthinkable, and Charlotte would not be embarrassed by her daughter. Years later, when Marceline's youngest sister Sharon divorced, Walter and Charlotte Baldwin gladly took her and her children in, helping Sharon in every way to move on with her life. But now Marceline listened to her mother. Perhaps Jim was just unsettled because he still hadn't decided on a career. Things between them would surely get better after he did. Jim's second year in college was less successful academically. He withdrew from several, from several of his classes and made indifferent grades in the ones that he completed. And Jim still expected to achieve great things, but he wasn't sure how to go about it. He started talking about studying the law, and Marceline, shaken by Jim's statements about God, still coaxed him into attending the Methodist service with her on Sunday. Jim's and just apathy towards the Lord might yet be replaced with the comfort of unquestioning obedience. She also brought Jim back into the Baldwin family circle. Walter and Charlotte tried hard to make him feel welcome, and Jim seemed willing. He especially doted on Marceline's grandmother, always making a fuss over the old lady. Everybody agreed it was nice to see such a young man taking an interest in the elderly. This is a trend that you will see throughout his life, and I believe there's a very simple explanation for that. Old people die. Old people have things. Old people need to leave those things to somebody. You'll see. Another of Marceline's relations also appealed to Jim, her nine-year-old cousin Ronnie. He had a tough life. His father died when the boy was four, and his unstable mother moved from one unsuitable man to another. She frequently sent Ronnie and his two older brothers away to live with relatives or in foster homes. Jesus. The boys were always separated, and Ronnie felt lonely and unloved, because he was. In June of 1950, Ronnie was being housed by a foster family when he suffered abdominal pain and had trouble standing straight. The foster family believed Ronnie was faking an illness as an excuse to make a school, or to miss school. That weekend, there was a Baldwin family gathering at Walter and Charlotte's house, and Ronnie wasn't there, but his brother Charles was, and he told Marceline about Ronnie's discomfort. Marceline guessed the boy had a ruptured appendix. Oh, shit. And she and Jim rushed to the foster family's house and took Ronnie to the hospital. His appendix was indeed ruptured, and if Marceline hadn't intervened, the boy would have surely died over gangrenous infection. Disgusting. When he recovered, Ronnie was farmed out to yet another foster family, but Marceline and Jim stayed in touch with him. And a year later, surprised Ronnie and the rest of the Baldwins by inviting the boy to come live with them. It was a considerable sacrifice on their part. They'd recently moved to Indianapolis so Jim could take pre-law classes at the University of Indiana's campus there. Uh, Jim worked part-time to pay for tuition and books, and Marceline worked nights as a nurse at a children's hospital. They lived in a small two-bedroom apartment, but they welcomed Ronnie with open arms. The now 10-year-old had his own room and soon a bicycle. Very nice of them. Burdened as they were with work and studies, Jim and Marceline still took Ronnie to the movies, which Jim in particular loved, and on short weekend trips to places like Niagara Falls and Snow, Mexico, or Canada. They suggested that he call them mom and dad, but Ronnie did not dig it. He was not comfortable with it. 
Some nights, Jim would summon Ronnie and launch into a long, graphic description of fuck it. What the fuck? He was determined the boy should know every possible detail. That's fucking weird, man. In a 2014 interview, Ronnie joked that had Marceline been willing, Jim might very well have offered a practical demonstration. Ew. The ten-year-old dazzled his pals with his newfound knowledge, and they agreed that Ronnie now knew more about sex than any other kid in the elementary school. Yo, dude, time and a place. <sighs> time would be like... 15? Place would be, uh, not at school. Other times, Jim talked about Ronnie's mother. He told the boy that she was a whore because she lived with a man out of wedlock. Jim demanded that Ronnie accept him and Marceline as his new parents, and Ronnie wouldn't. He hoped that somehow his mother would get her life under control and bring him and his brothers back to live with her, but he didn't say that to Jim. Ronnie decided Jim was two-faced, all friendly and nice when he was out in public, and much different at home. He could see that as a child. That's interesting. In Indianapolis, Jim took two University of Indiana courses during 52, yeah, barely scraping by with bees now. But completing his college education was no longer his primary concern. He finally knew what he wanted to do in his life, and it began with a renewed commitment to socialism, even in its most extreme and dangerous communist form. Though the vast majority of Americans viewed communism as a threat in Indianapolis, there were still occasional public gatherings to, uh, dedicated to avowed communists and sympathizers meeting together. Jim began attending these meetings, often bringing Marceline and Ronnie along. Much of what Marceline heard was just very exciting to her because it was a great concept. And was it possible that America's system of government was responsible for the problems of the poor? And it seemed like it was. Uh, no one she'd known growing up in Richmond had ever said so, and it was disturbing for her to consider the possibilities. In essence, she discovered the Matrix. Jim was in his element. He listened carefully to every speech, studying the way that they spoke, their cadences, and physical mannerisms of the most effective speakers. Yes, he made no effort to disguise his enthusiasm, even to the ubiquitous government agents who always stood outside the meeting venues, uh, ostentatiously observing and jotting notes about everybody going in and out. They made many of the attendees nervous, which was the fucking point. But Jim would often go right up to them, shake his dick at the men, uh, so to speak, uh, and formally introduce himself. And then walk away, rock hard, tugging on his dick. Not quite literally. Uh, he would introduce himself, walk away, smiling like a buffoon, because they did not intimidate him. And if anything, he liked their attention. About the same time, an unexpected source provided Jim with the balls that he needed to pursue his socialist agenda. Marceline still occasionally dragged Jim to Methodist church services on Sundays. He remained resentful of all Methodists and of Christianity in general. All of their horse shit about paradise after death and meanwhile not doing a fucking thing to help the needy. But sometime in early 1952, he was staggered by a new emphasis in the Methodist faith. The faith's governing body adopted a new formal social creed supporting the alleviation of poverty, the right of collective bargaining, free speech, prison reform, full employment, racial integration, and Jim didn't know and would not have cared that this new Methodist platform had been many years in the making, as was true for several other Protestant denominations. Ugh. I don't mean to uh, single out any particular group, but I am half Greek and Irish Catholic. So, I'm trying my best. Methodist leaders had always encouraged social activism as an expression of faith, and particularly during the Depression. But now, in the early 1950s, the plight of black Americans was cause for their concern. The Bible commanded that all people be loved equally. There was no three-fifths compromise in the fucking Bible. And with those in need, they needed to be clothed and fed. Fucking amen. The Methodist Church re-emphasized its commitment to this structure, and Jim heard sermons urging worshipers to actually practice these beliefs. Finally, nice. He informed Marceline and his in-laws that he would become a Methodist minister, since the church now wanted to put real socialism into practice. Marceline was fucking horny. Maybe. This was what she'd hoped for. Jim said about finding a Methodist church that would accept him as a student pastor. What Marceline missed or ignored, as did the other Baldwins, was that this wasn't a matter of Jim admitting that he had been wrong in his previous hatred for traditional Christianity. Uh, Jim was not 
returning as a repentant prodigal son to the Methodist Church. From his perspective, the Methodist Church had come to him. It was a means to an end. It was the uh, religion for the wrong reason, so to speak. As Jim searched for a church, he also explored another approach to expressing his faith. On some Sundays and weeknights in Indianapolis, he took Marceline and Ronnie to black churches. Often, they were the only white family there. Ronnie was particularly stunned by the uh, participation factor of these services, so unlike the much more reserved behavior of white worship, here the people jumped up and sang and danced and called out responses to their preacher's sermonizing, which was nice. More, you feel more involved. Black churches didn't seem so sticky or rigid to any stupid agenda, um, or they also didn't seem to observe time limits. Their services went on for hours and nobody seemed to mind. People seemed to be having fun and not acting like they were fulfilling an obligation begrudgingly. They liked being in church. Marceline enjoyed the music. Ronnie tried clumsily to join the clapping and screaming, but Jim just loved it all. He whooped and stomped and hugged everybody, and he seemed at home at these services in a way that he never did anywhere else. Much of that resulted from the openness of the congregations. Everybody was welcome, whites included. Nobody asked why you were there. They only seemed pleased that you were. And every time that they attended a black church, Jim made a shitload of new friends. The Joneses always liked having company, and now they had as many or more black guests as white ones. Jim was an inquisitive host, and he wanted to know everything about his new friends' lives, including their treatment by utility companies and white city officials and shop owners. How did prejudice affect even the most mundane aspects of their life? Jim stopped lecturing Ronnie so much about fucking. Now he used every available minute to explain to the boy how blacks were as good as whites. In the summer of 1952, Jim was hired as a student pastor for Somerset Methodist Church, which drew its membership from the lower-income white families in Indianapolis. It was not large or distinguished, but that made no difference to Jim. His first sermon extolled living in Christianity and the virtues of acting on belief. At age 21, he'd apparently found his life's work. And on that note, Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Anthology of Horror. It's all slowly building up to the awful conclusion. This is going to be a long one, but I think that this is another one of those things where I need to do the story justice, because uh, what happened in Guyana was fucking terrible. It was, uh, it was totally unnecessary, and their story deserves to be told. This has been another ad-free listening experience. And as is our custom, I'm going to look at the magic fucking map that I have that has cities illuminated when people start listening, and then the brightest light is in the middle, and I can see from that light spawned other lights if they're telling people. And uh, I know a lot of you have seemed to have been doing that, so thank you very much for spreading the word. That is the only way to keep this going. I genuinely appreciate the support, and I genuinely appreciate the messages of support, and I appreciate messages of how I could do it better or what I should be covering. I appreciate everything. I'm here for you and I value your time. So, with no further ado, I want to give a resounding shout out to Mount Joy, Pennsylvania, because you are killing it. You have, whoever started it in Mount Joy, Pennsylvania, you are very influential. You are 4% of all listeners, so you're doing pretty fucking good. Followed behind, uh, trailing behind the ways, is Rancho Cucamonga, California, the city of London after that, Erie, Pennsylvania, Bradford, England, Glasgow, Scotland, San Diego, California, Brooklyn, New York, Ogden, Utah, Fort Worth, Texas, Singapore, Freehold, New Jersey, Prescott, Arizona, and Colorado Springs, Colorado. Thank you all very much for tuning in. I see Belfast, Ireland on that list again. I see Texas is consistently on that list. I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you very much for tuning back in. And I will put out another episode, part three of Jim Jones and uh, the People's Temple very soon. But in the meantime, thank you for everything and stay spooky. <laughs>